Nowadays, as I've gotten more senior, I, I tend to look at myself as a force multiplier, so I try to lend my expertise wherever it could help move the business forward. Metrics requires foresight into what's going to matter later on. I think kind of the eventual holy grail that everyone wants to get to is like being able to ambiently become aware of those things, right? Measure everything and figure out what matters later. It is a big boost in quality of life for people to know that like in the absence of an utmost emergency, an unexpected thing is not coming their way for the next three weeks and they can focus on their job. Hi, I'm Liz Fong Jones. And I'm Charity Majors. And you're listening to Observability Cast, a monthly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. Alicast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Alicast. That's O-11-Y-C-A-S-T, Alicast. So my background is in infrastructure engineering, so I was kind of, you know, first principles type thing. We had, you know, external monitoring. Everyone kind of starts with like your outside black box monitoring where you have synthetic stuff hitting your API endpoints. And then uh, inevitably as your systems grow, that is only kind of like telling you what the weather is right now, but right. not telling you how you got there. And so I uh, started instrumenting uh, individual systems, and this was back before tracing was really popularized mm-hmm. or, or made accessible to smaller startups especially. And so started kind of just building fundamental building blocks and, and sending stuff into what graphite. What are the fundamental building blocks? Timers, counters, that kind of stuff, right. wrapping them anywhere and everywhere. Right. Um, and later on, it becomes anywhere you can afford to keep them, kind of, uh, because you know when you're running your own infrastructure, that sort of stuff. And you're from the infrastructure side. How much do you identify as a software engineer? It's an interesting question. I, I you know, nowadays, uh, as I've gotten more senior, I, I tend to look at myself as a force multiplier. So I try mm-hmm. to lend my expertise wherever it can help move the business forward, and uh, wherever I can help, like grow less experienced engineers or engineers who have less experience in a certain area that maybe I do. I think it was super interesting when you came in. You were talking about the weather report, right? And you were talking about how the weather report from the entire San Francisco Bay is very different than your experience in each of San Francisco's microclimates, and you got rained on as a result when you came here, <laughs> right? That's a good analogy, and so kind of you know, there, I think there's there's two different lenses to look at things. It's like knowing the individual um, health of your different systems. You know, there's a lot of ways to do that, but more importantly, maybe is knowing the individual um, quality of an individual experience that goes through the system for things that are user facing. It, it always looks different from the inside than from the outside. So now would be a good time for you to introduce yourself. Sure, uh, my name is Michael Hood. Uh, I run performance engineering at Optimizely. And what does Optimizely do? Uh, Optimizely is a company that provides an experimentation and feature flagging platform. Uh, so companies who want to experiment, uh, whether on their website or deepen their stack with our full stack product, can implement our SDKs and run like A/B or multivariate tests through feature flags uh, and deliver different experiences to different users and kind of find out what the optimum experience is. You guys were doing feature flags before feature flags were cool. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So your customers require observability to understand how their experiments are running, and you use observability yourselves in order to understand how your platform is doing. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, our, our kind of primary product uh, historically had been our web product, and that's a, a big piece of JavaScript that companies add as a third-party JavaScript to their site, and obviously nowadays that's kind of a, a hot-button issue with regards to security, performance, etc. But for a long time, and, and still we have a small uh, RUM, like real user monitoring beacon, embedded in our third-party JavaScript that evaluates the performance of it on the website. We take about eight 
80 different measurements and send those back to a backend that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sampled to some degree. And we can do very deep analysis on like what the interactions between our JavaScript and other popular third-party mm-hmm. JavaScripts are. Uh, understand a lot of companies would kill to have that, mm-hmm. to have real user monitoring embedded in every endpoint. That's really amazing. And it makes sense to me now why optimizing with some of our earliest customers, because you all are very familiar with this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I kind of you know brought that background to optimizing when I joined, of thinking about JavaScript in the browser as a distributed system. It has yeah. a lot of the same hallmarks, right? Like there's mm-hmm. noisy neighbor type issues, you're in a, in a multi-tenant environment that you don't fully mm-hmm. control, it's kind of like writing in the cloud. Mm, yeah, because I know a lot of infrastructure engineers, you know, falsely put down front-end engineering, right? That's and not it's distributed like, systems. And it's like, no, it's super complex, it's super interesting. It's extremely complex, uh, and you know, it's unfortunate that there's that like kind of tension or, you know, animosity between the two sides. There's a lot more uh, in common than they would appreciate, I think. I watched that talk by a meat computer called The Web is the Original Distributed System a couple years ago, and it really stuck with me. Yeah, uh, so you know they already had like a, a kind of more simplified existing version of like what they we call Rum now internally, and, and that was just kind of recording how long it took to download the JavaScript from the uh, browser, but they weren't measuring how long it took to execute or mm-hmm. anything about that execution. And so now we've kind of built our own little small uh, tracing by measuring different mm-hmm. spans inside there, and we hope to actually at some point be able to use like those to represent spans inside like the tracing functionality in Honeycomb even. Nice. Um, and because we already have that. Coming back, and we're aggregating it in our backend system, and to avoid survivorship bias, which is a really common problem mm-hmm. with these types of sensors, where you have a thing that only sends once the thing is fully done executing, so you can get all those measurements. Well, that doesn't tell you about the ones that went bad. Mm. Um, so we actually send two. We send a lightweight one as soon as it's done downloading, when it mm-hmm. starts executing, and then another one at the end of the page once we have about you know seventy something more measurements available. We stitch those together in the backend, and we actually send those to Honeycomb. Yeah, we had one thing that was very similar to that in that we had an recently at Honeycomb where we failed to get the telemetry from processes that were crashing due to running out of memory. And therefore, it looked like network traffic was just dropping when in fact it was that our telemetry was failing to send at the end of the execution. Yeah, it's an interesting and hard problem. And it's not one where there's a correct answer because like, you don't want to call home after every single function executes. Like That right. would just be excessive. That would saturate your network traffic. You don't want to call home only after it's successfully exited or errored because that's not going to catch the kill-9s. So you do kind of like, and this is something where every place that I've worked has arrived at a different compromise, which suggests to me that you still do kind of have to understand your code. Understand you have to system. understand your code and you have to have a way to look for those incomplete executions yeah. that are yeah. a sign that something has gone wrong with your own instrumentation, which is a sign that something is deeply amiss. Yeah, you, you answered the question that I was going to get to though, which is though, so you instrumented like the life cycle of, the, of this stuff, but obviously you just did it with metrics that are completely disconnected from each other, right? Because that would make sense. I'm being sarcastic. But like the, this is the tool that's been available to us for so long. It's just like metrics. And and this is something that I think that it clicks for everybody eventually. But for a lot of people, it still hasn't clicked yet. Maybe can you can explain to us like what is the shortcomings of traditional metrics? Yeah, uh, metrics requires foresight into to what's going to matter later on, right? So if you were to say like, well, stick with a browser example, although there's probably more interesting ones when we're down this path, you need to know like what matters about it, and that's especially that environment really hard to know. Like, should, what can you measure? Also, the things that you would kind of be able to reflect out 
of a, a traditional environment like memory usage and so forth, this isn't available to you. So you have to infer those things from sizes of different objects you have. Mm-hmm. Like, so should we start tracking how big this array got? Mm-hmm. Things like that. I think kind of the eventual holy grail that everyone wants to get to is like being able to ambiently become aware of those things, right? Measure everything and figure out what matters later. And the trade-offs about, you know, like how much data you're transmitting, how much you're storing, you know, ingest at your your provider, et cetera, kind of all come into play. I there. have a sticker that says Graph everything? Fuck you. <laughs> I think the other interesting avenue to this is also talking about not just how much data are you collecting, but are you pre-aggregating, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, are you deciding in advance how you're aggregating or are you leaving it up to the analysis later, as you say? <laughs> That's an interesting question. So when I say before that we are aggregating it, I actually mean just that we're sessionizing like those multiple beacons that come in. We stitch them together in a little in memory window that's like 30 seconds long. So that's Okay, so that's, that's kind of creating individual events out of multiple different measurements. Yeah, so it's taking those two beacons and literally just like appending them on the same row, right? So it's Yeah, it's, and that makes a lot of sense, right? Like that goes with what Charity and I have been saying for a while, which is, you know, wide events, right? Single wide events rather than emitting multiple log lines or multiple beacons per user load. Yeah, we send a single event, uh, both to Honeycomb and other syncs, as uh, you know, one execution of our platform in the browser, and that's about 100 columns wide. So that's not aggregation, that's just correlation, as yes, it were. Yes, exactly. I guess you could say it's aggregating around the event itself. Hmm, I it's, don't really like overloading I, the word I aggregation. I don't either, <laughs> but like, I've had a bunch of nitpicky people point out to me, but, but actually, so sure. They're correct. I mean, at some level, everything is an aggregation. If we're, we're going to take it to you, that extreme, right? Anytime you like stick two things together, you are, you know. I think that without some level of aggregation, if we're going to overload it to mean that, yeah. where clauses, as it were, are not useful anymore. Oh, that's a very good point. Let, let's talk more about that kind of where clauses are not useful anymore. Sure. I, I just mean that you know you're aggregating something, right? You need something to identify all these things happen together. If you just had a big event waterfall and no way to say, okay, these things happen to the same person or the same connection or whatever, these would be fairly meaningless in most mm, cases. So that's, that's what most metrics platforms are doing. They're saying, you know, the average of all of these loads is, or the if, if you have a more sophisticated provider, at least it's a heat map or histogram, mm-hmm. but it still is, you know, you have no connection between these things. And I tend to think that most ways that metrics are interpreted, you know, kind of in, in legacy senses are meaningless, frankly. Like, you yeah. know, people have a thermometer when they need something, you know, more like a stethoscope. I'm always so interested in like thinking about how like the technology that we have has given rise to the practices that we have and like the social interactions that we have. Like the legacy metrics have given rise to like this generation of people who thought that debugging was done by intuition. You know, like we'd have these these graphs and like past experience would tell us that sometimes it correlates with an outage or it correlates with this system being wrong or something. We don't actually have the information to debug it systematically. And so people have just like grown up thinking that this is normal and this is called debugging is just having battle scars and you know, applying them to dashboards. Yeah, or like using your analogy of, you know, thermometer versus stethoscope. If someone says, you know what, this person has an elevated temperature, I bet 99% of the time that it's, you know, a cold, right? And then they miss the infection or they miss the, right? Like The average temperature of all people in San Francisco is, you know, I mean, that's just not... If it goes up a little, what does it tell you? Well, if you're a doctor and you've seen plagues before, you're like, this must be the plague. It's like, no, you have you have a very, very, very blunt signal and you have your experiences. I think that, that brings out an interesting thing and it kind of ties back to the question about aggregations before the, the original meaning of the word. A reason that I think it, it's kind of forced upon people to realize that they have to do away with kind of the 
legacy notion of, of a stats D style, like just roll up everything in this window, is because now we have the ability to query things along so many dimensions mm-hmm. that those sorts of rollups no longer make sense. Right, exactly. One of the challenges that I encountered when we had a very, even a very sophisticated metric system at Google was you had to know which metrics to look at, and mm-hmm. knowing which metrics to look at were either intuition or you leaf through 20 pages of 20 different dashboards of 20 different graphs in each dashboard, what wiggled at the same time. Everything wiggles at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> the, just the, the stochastic nature of it yeah. will mean that you're, you're going to make a lot of inferences that seem interesting at the time, and, and you know half of your investigating a current incident or, or trying to look at it after the fact uh, tends to be leading you down the wrong path, in my experience. Yeah. So, AI ops, what do you think about AI ops? <laughs> I think it's interesting as a as a concept. Uh, I'm super skeptical of anything that uses the AI label, and increasingly so of things that tend to fundraise on the ML label right now. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of what I've seen that's called ML is best probably expressed as like a case with a you know and a switch or some nested if statements. But it's a machine and it's a language, Michael. I'm sure those words mean something, but I don't know what. <laughs> Uh, I mean, and frankly, I lack the the kind of classical education to to fully understand the more sophisticated stuff that's out there. But that's very the, gracious of you. The vast majority of what I see isn't the more sophisticated stuff. It's yeah. like I could do that without machine learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the other angle is what we just talked about. With you know, if you roll a hundred different dice, like you know, some combination of three of them will all come up sixes, right? Like you wind up inevitably having these experiments where one experiment happens to return a sufficiently low p value because. You ran enough experiments that one of them will do that by accident. I think the saddest thing that I've ever heard of people using IOPS for is to manage their alerts. <laughs> like, come on. That's if creating a spam filter for your alerts then, basically? It, yes, basically. But like, if you have so many alerts that you think that you need to use AI or ML to manage them, I've got a suggestion. Delete them all. Yeah. Just delete all of them. They're not helping you. It's a lot cheaper for sure than it's a lot paying cheaper. someone to... It'll drive you less crazy... Honestly, we see it like people delete all their alerts when they go to like uh, SLO based monitoring and it drops by an order of magnitude. Yep. You know, 80, 90% of them gone. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, if you have a way to measure customer experience accurately or your user end user experience accurately, you know, kind of threshold based alerting doesn't really have a place in, the, in that world. Like, yeah. the, the simple. Well, but the reason it's stuck around for so long, I think, is because people have gotten used to thinking that it's debugging. They get paged about a symptom, and this is how they know that to go fix something because they don't have the sophisticated tooling to ask iterative debugging questions of their systems based on science, but they know that they, they'll get these signals from somewhere in their system, and then they, somebody needs to go fix something, and that's the only way that they know that these things are happening, and so they don't want to delete it because they're like, chaos will reign. It's kind of the, if a tree falls in the forest and it doesn't fall on anyone, you know, does it really matter? And it's been widely talked about like alerting fatigue is very real as well, and, and people kind of get desensitized to those things. And so, using alerts for symptoms like a thing is about to happen, everyone mm-hmm. get on the edge of their seats is a extremely bad for culture. I think. Okay. Sorry, terminology nitpick. That's a uh, potential cause of a problem rather than a symptom. When we talk about symptoms, sure. we usually are talking about symptoms of users are actually in pain. Right. That's if users fair. are actually in pain and they are seeing symptoms of pain, like high latency, high error rates. Right. We want to do something. We don't necessarily want to alert on potential causes. We're not precogs. Of, exactly, we're not precogs. So, how does your team handle on call? What's your alert load like? How do people debug? That's interesting. Uh, so, I'll say specifically from 
my team, uh, I'm responsible for Optimizely's uh, delivery infrastructure of like the JavaScript snippet that we've talked about, as well as the JSON data files that kind of uh, provide to our SDKs like what feature flags exist, a manifest of what should happen, right? So that gets you know obviously many many requests uh, per second, twenty four seven. It's a fairly flat load, and you would think that that's something that requires like a kind of serious on-call structure and, and triage and so forth. I don't want to downplay like the, the support that my team and, and my organization has provided, and certainly other teams that manage more lively systems have good support for this, but I have been the primary on-call on this rotation for four years, 24-7, including vacations. I've gotten paged, I think, three times. Wow. S3 outage, uh, Dyne DNS outage, and one other one that was a false positive. That's great. Congratulations. And so the escalation path is basically straight to uh, a VP of engineering mm-hmm. if I were to, to miss the page. That's how confident I am that like if we get paged, it's serious and it should absolutely go to the top if like for some reason I fail to answer that. I feel like we should be congratulating ourselves more than we do on when things are good. Yeah, exactly, right? Like we shouldn't be congratulating ourselves on, hey, you handled oh, this you firefighting suffered. last so week, good. right? Like, oh my God, it's like, you know, we what a martyr. Like, Charity, you're such a martyr. Uh, yes. So how do you get the confidence in your systems to be able to ship all the time and not get paged? Like, what are your safety measures? Feature flags. Uh, mm-hmm. Everything is behind feature flags and everything is done through canary releases, right? So if I introduce a change in functionality to our CDN or the way that we deliver stuff, I do it to a small percentage of traffic uh, mm-hmm. first. and, and so, you, so you drink your own champagne? Absolutely. <laughs> the, uh, the term of art, I believe, is progressive deployments. Ah, I like that. Uh, that's the one that James has been trying to popularize and I really like it. Well, I'm happy to help with that. We use progressive deployments. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Everything uh, you know, we have like OKRs around this. Like everything will be shipped behind a feature flag, and you know, we're increasingly moving. And that's actually like surprisingly uh, an interesting area of difficulty for us to do canary releases, though, in an enterprise application. Mm-hmm. You know, some of our customers are are the largest, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of software companies in the world, and having an experience where like. You know, even if you were to think, oh, different teams could see different experiences, that could be really confusing. If yeah. like you're like, my you know experience of using this application has changed as compared to another team. Also, they expect very stable release cycles. There's like a legacy expectation in the SaaS world that you have these really long release cycles, and it's like now we've shipped V24 and you have a new add button here or something, and that that doesn't really jive with like modern product development, right? Right, exactly. And I I was actually just about to ask this, which is how do you, you and your customers deal with multiple different feature flags intersecting, right? Like there's no longer a linear number of versions, right? Instead, it's a combination of different feature flags that can be on or off at any time. Yeah, and it's it's a combinatorial explosion is the term that we use internally, right? If you have... 30 different feature flags that someone could be exposed to, even if they're only like Boolean, you know, true or false type things, that's an enormous number of permutations that you have out there. And you can no longer have a metric for every single combination. Exactly. That goes back to what I was saying before, why observability becomes important. You can't have a stats D metric with like 80 underscores that describes like this thing. <laughs> and, and, and if you did, it would have like two data points, right? And it wouldn't be meaningful. So right. we're actually working on some really interesting stuff this coming year in feature monitoring, we call it, which like it looks to to explore Ooh. the interactions between the different states of feature flags and the impact that they have from a, an experimentation lens, nice. like the impact that they have on business metrics, for example. Perhaps two people who have this combination of feature flag values uh, have an outsized impact to some other business metric you wouldn't have considered. Mm. Yeah, that's something we definitely think a lot about at Honeycomb is things like the statistical correlations on any given combination of fields makes it easier to spot, like, hey, this spate of errors is correlated with these 
those two particular flags being on at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Optimizely has invested really heavily like in the stats field and in ways that are far beyond my understanding. There's a lot of uh, academic papers. We uh, released one called Stats Engine that uh, kind of powers Optimizely's ability to determine what uh, variations of an experiment are statistically significant and mm. better or mm. worse, like the, the lift or the, the fall from that. And a lot of, like I said, is beyond my, my realm of understanding. But a lot of our customers come to us uh, specifically because we have that statistical Model. So experiments, like this, this is actually one of our company values. You know, is that everything is an experiment and something it's that painted was, on our walls. It's painted on our walls. Yeah, That's Christine really cool. and I say I'd, this. I'd love to see a picture of that. Christine yeah. and I say, I'll show you one. Uh, Christine and I say this to each other all the time. But it was recently pointed out to us that we do that not very well because everything's an experiment. For us, it like lowers the barrier to trying things. You know, we don't have to get attached to outcomes because we can just try things. But we haven't been very good at measuring results. How do you feel about that? It's an interesting problem, right? Like, what is experimentation without results? Yeah. That's kind of just doing random things and. You know, I think when you say without results, you obviously have some results that are just not like granular enough. Like you have the intuitive ones, like yeah. things feel better, but obviously that's not good enough. Mm-hmm. So like if you look at it from that lens, it's like how good of results do you require for this? And for the same reason about like the cardinality of the different types of, of experiences that we talked about before that makes like stats D style metrics untenable, the need for better results is, is the same reason here. If you only have exactly one type of experience you provided, exactly one type of customer, all of them did the exact same thing. Your need for results would be pretty basic. You could just count like how many people seemed happy, right? Yeah. Well, that's not good enough anymore. So you need to be able to do what we call attribution to be able to associate like, okay, this business metric was higher, but why? What was the result of that? What experiences were they exposed to? Whether they were behind flags or as a result of experiments you were running, and what were the contributors to that? And how much should you attribute that lift to these different things? Mm. And with enough statistical power, because you have enough data going through, you can discover those things. Mm, that's super interesting to think about because in my particular world, I think a lot about the correlation between system performance and user experience rather than feature flags and user experience, yeah. right? It's kind of two sides of the same coin of we're trying to measure user experience but for slightly different purposes. I'm trying to measure how good does the system have to perform in order to make users happy and you're measuring like what changes can we make in order to make users happier. Yeah, and I think the performance thing is really interesting. Something that some of our customers have expressed a desire to do, and we've actually been working with the Web Standards Group on a potential standard for ablation testing of performance, like through Chromium and, and hopefully other browsers as well, which would allow you to synthetically slow things down. Oh, yes. Yeah, so bringing chaos engineering to everyone rather mm. than just requiring you to uh, you know buy a vendor's product. Right. Because something I see that happens a lot is customers have a, a correlation plot between page load time and revenue, or, or some proxy thereof. And and for a lot of reasons, that's okay as a starting point, but that's not strictly correct to do, right? Like the, the users who have those slower load experiences have them for different reasons. Maybe they have slower devices, maybe they have slower connectivity. And those traits themselves introduce a type of bias that you can't infer that, like, okay, if this was 100 milliseconds faster, they would have spent X amount more because other people who had that. 100 millisecond faster experience did. Right, exactly. People who can afford higher internet connection speeds and lower latencies might have higher incomes. Exactly, and that's the immediate one that comes to mind, but there's a long tail of reasons that we're not ever going to think of here. And so rather than have to try to, to figure that out, something that I'm interested in is, is being able to establish uh, kind of a plot that shows like your visitor's tolerance for slowdowns. Because it doesn't make sense necessarily. Like We all know about like the diminishing returns of trying to invest in, in faster and faster performance, but wouldn't it be cool if you could have a plot that showed like 
where the shelves are kind of in that, where it's like, if you get to here, that makes a big difference. But beyond this, and kind of identified a few little notches where you should shoot for. Right, exactly. And that helps people set better service level objectives if they know what their service level indicator target should be for latency. Yeah, exactly. So on to our final topic. How do you spread knowledge of good practices within your team? How do you bring everyone up to the level of your best debugger? Our best debugger, I, I think that that's probably something that I'm not great at conveying the knowledge on because I am able to, I have the privilege of leaning heavily on past experience. Right. I mentioned before, like, I, you know, how often I've gotten pages. That was definitely not always the case. Like, I've, I've worked places where I was paged so frequently and so around the clock that at one point I, I would sleep with headphones in so I didn't wake up my wife when oh, I would get paged. Oh, oh that makes uh, me hurt. And I still have the habit of sleeping with headphones in because of the, the way that that place ha- has kind of ruined my, my psyche for sleeping at night, apparently. <laughs> but uh, you know, now it's just like I, I don't listen to alerts now. I, I listen to music or something because I've gotten in the habit of, of listening to something. But I think that you know I'm able to draw on all that experience of like I've seen things break in every conceivable way. Uh, so I have this big pull of, but there's a, a that's not scalable, right? You can't like somehow impute that knowledge to oh, other yeah. folks. It used to be the case that you would become an excellent systems engineer by learning the hard way, by yeah. having five or ten years of running outages. your system into outages. Right, and I and I mentioned the impact that it's had on on my like quality of life, uh, not not just for the funny anecdote, but because that's not something we want to do to people, no, right? Even if we not. could teach people like in a trial by fire, that's that's not right. Yeah. So now we have to find better ways and give them better tools to do so. As far as like spreading the knowledge, written documents, especially as teams become more remote, we rely heavily on, on Google Docs. Yes, to- but also I feel like the days of the playbook are coming to an end. You know, like it used to be that your systems could break in some pretty predictable ways. Yeah, and you playbooks could- are for the known and knowns. Exactly. And increasingly, I think that the goal in the future should be every time you get paged, it should be something new. Because it might be that the mitigation is in the playbook, but the ability to debug it is exactly. should be something new. Yeah. Because the, this is the like our systems get to a certain level of bigness and complexity and everything, and you have to fix those things. The the common failures, the ones that page over and over. Because if you don't fix them, you're fucked. So we assume you do fix them, and and so like I think that the the still useful place is having a starting point. Almost like a, a dating profile for each service. Like this is how you reach me. This is who's responsible for. Me. Okay, this this veered off a little bit, but but like here's here's a good starting point. Here are some jumping off points. Here are some common patterns to look for. Yeah, and like here is the feature flag to turn off this yeah. feature. Right? Like, yeah. oh my goodness, if you give me a quick red button, I will press that quick red button in order to keep my service from being on fire, so I can go back to bed and debug it tomorrow morning. Yeah, resiliency is not like making your systems not have problems. It's about your systems being able to have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of problems without waking you up. And so I think that having a couple of different channels for alerts, it should only be if your users are in pain that you get woken up. And this is not something we were good at when I was growing up. You know, It was just like we just abused ourselves. We just fired off alerts at ourselves all the time. But in this case, Michael's saying that he's gotten paged three times in four years, right? How yes. do you convey knowledge to your peers when you get paged three times in four years and you're the only one on call. I assume there's still like stuff that you need to do to fix things. Yeah, so to be clear, when I say that I've gotten paged, I'm referring to like outside business hours, pager duty, like actually you mm-hmm. know, sent me the notification. We still have, and, and it's something that I'm not a, a big fan of, but we have like what I'm sure we're all familiar with where it's like the half alert, like where you have mm-hmm. some system that pushes a Slack notification somewhere and says like a thing is awry. And those are you know typically like threshold-based monitoring, like dead man switches, which 
I, I'm actually a big, big fan of uh, under the right circumstances, things like that. And so we use those and, and we look at those things that are coming up and we use those in the course of regular business hours. We have like an on-call rotation. The person who is on call that week focuses on triaging, understanding those sorts of issues, researching them, putting items in the backlog for enhancements, You know, responding to any uh, escalations that come to our team. And that person is kind of responsible for taking a look at those and understanding and then pairing up, if necessary, with someone else who may understand it better. It relieves me so much to hear every time someone says there is a dedicated person for on-duty or on-call, right? Like rather than spraying it across the entire team. Absolutely, yeah. I think that that's a a huge innovation. And and to be fair, I I wasn't the one who who drove that. We have like great people on our team who think about this stuff. And I think that it is kind of a, a big boost in quality of life for people to know that like in the absence of an utmost emergency, an unexpected thing is not coming their way for the next you know three weeks and they can focus on their job. I feel like this is like the exchange that we have to make, an exchange for everyone being on call. And I do think every engineer should be on call for their systems in some form or another. Mm-hmm. We have to make it not suck. We have to make it not something you have to plan your life around. You know, we have to make it something that isn't going to predictably like interrupt your sleep. Yeah. And indeed, right, a past guest from Intercom said they run a all volunteer on call rotation. I, li- I love that. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and I mean, and we more or less do in the sense that like we auto generate the rotation through pager duty. But people trade and swap so frequently and regularly, it more or less, I feel like, becomes that. I'd be really interested you know, to, like, to hear about the details of I, how they... They've written some great blog posts about it, and they're, they're super. We should put those in the show notes, too. But I like the idea of making a world where being on call, being in the page of rotation is seen as a badge of honor. Something that badge you, of honor, but not a heroic badge of honor. Not a heroic right? badge like, of honor, but like, okay, yeah, if you're if you're a new grad, like maybe you haven't yet gotten cool enough that you could be on... But like once you're a responsible... Like, Member, certainly once you're any kind of senior engineer, like you have ascended to the ranks of the people who support this service. You know? Exactly, right? Like it's not a measure of how much heroism you do, it's a measure of how much expertise and skills that you have to yes. be able to and, handle the system. I also think that like we should make a world where people look forward to their on call weeks because think of all the crappy stuff. You're, you're so busy with your project work and you're, you're building your stuff, and there's all these things that annoy you that you never get to get to. On call week is when you have permission to do nothing but that. Right? Nothing but look at the weird and interesting things happening yes. inside of your system. Explore, fix things that have been bugging you, you know, improve the deployment process, you know, iterate on these things that are outside your normal lane. Like I've always looked forward to being on call when it's like that's what I get to look forward to. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting, and and it's like certainly putting that sort of a lens on it, like you know, for like an on-call rotation rather than like something that people uh, dread, like it's agency. I, I th- yeah, a I week think, of agency. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that like expectation setting and it's a culture thing of like on-call is the time. It's almost like a hack week, right? Like yes, in the in the exactly. event that you've taken care of your stuff and nothing like breaks Personal all the week. time, it's your hack week where you can improve the things that bug you about your your mm-hmm. area of the product. Once you've earned the right, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and you earn the right by making sure you don't have these nagging alerts that you should have already taken care of like fixing the issues underlying them. Totally. Cool. Well, thank you for joining us, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. If you're interested in being a guest on a future show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. That's O-1-1-Y-Cast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit HeavyBit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tool companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.